Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Back to the Football by Football podcast. This is your host, Matt Chatham. Uh, we're continuing to roll along, and we're going to dive into the Big Ten Conference now. Uh, as special guest today, we uh, have with us today Jay Foreman, a former NFL linebacker and linebacker in Nebraska. Uh, how you doing, Jay? Good. Uh, we, you know, we got a little break in the weather, so uh, I can't complain. And, and it's also football season, so now it, like life is all, all good now. Now you have like a weekly routine. Uh, well, hopefully here shortly. So it's it's, uh, it's going pretty good. We're going to dive right into it here. Uh, obviously, the Big Ten, it's a uh, happy season, I think, in this particular conference around the country. For guys that uh, like myself and, and Jay who grew up in Minnesota that kind of grew up in Big Ten country, uh, you're used to sort of getting beat down upon about hearing about a lack of talent and, you know, big guys, but maybe slow and those kinds of things. So for Ohio State to break through last year and win a national championship, especially against uh, SEC talent, that was a big moment. And uh, it seems that uh, coming out of BTN and coming out of sort of Big Ten Media Day this summer, there's a lot of a lot of hope, I think, in that conference. Uh, can you talk a little bit, Jay, uh, you know, a guy growing up in the Midwest of sort of the feel change, I think, that's going on now in the Big Ten with them finally breaking through? Yeah, Matt, you're, you're exactly right. It just seems like it, it was like the whole, I mean, what are they, big, you know, we're the Big Ten, Big 12, 14, or whatever, all the hope for respect, uh, you know, throughout the whole conference was on Ohio State. And, and let's not forget, when Urban Meyer came into the Big Big Ten, you know, they went undefeated, even though they were kind of, you know, right. on, on probation. So he he came in and set the standards high, which I, which a lot of people were turned off a little bit by because they felt like he was bringing in that SEC uh, attitude. But I think it raised the expectations, you know, in every single college town. Um, and then also with them obviously breaking through, uh, you know, beating Alabama, upsetting Alabama, I guess, if you thought it, you know, luckily to get in. And then they beat an Oregon team that had the Heisman Trophy winner, the guy that, you know, everybody wanted to have the Cinderella story for Marcus Mariota. And they played Big Ten-style football and then also scored a lot of points. So I think it's it's great for the Big Ten. I think it changes the perception nationwide. And I think it brings a little bit of a competitive balance. Now, what the Big Ten needs to do is uh, it just can't be Ohio State or bust. It has to be other teams right. uh, that's up there and, and, and it's going to be there on a consistent basis in order for the Big Ten overall to get respect. Because, if you you know, say like if Ohio State lays an egg this year, uh, Michigan is still Michigan as they've been the last few years. And Michigan State kind of, you know, it's kind of like that team that's always, they're good, but they don't know how good they are on a national level. Uh, it can reverse really quick, especially if you have, uh, you know, Auburn, Alabama, LSU, and so on, Texas A&M that really get going this year. Uh, you can slowly uh, be forgotten really quick. I think you, you really bring up an interesting point, Jay, and, and I, I was trying to sort of separate the idea of what I think is the feeling amongst Big Ten fans and people that live in Big Ten markets and people that are affiliated with these Big Ten teams that that was their breakthrough moment. But I do think that outside the conference and more of a national view, I, I think the perception just changed about Ohio State. <laughs> I think there's still a view of the Big Ten that a lot of those teams have a long ways to go, true or not. 
and, and I think an indication of this, and, and it kind of piggybacks off of what you were saying, uh, I was sort of trying to figure out how to frame this discussion as we're going to dive into it, because, you know, I, I think we, we start seeing the preseason polls, you see the media polls, the coaches polls, things along those lines. And, you know, even after what happened a year ago, and, and the big actually had a nice bowl record for the first time in a while as well, uh, and beat some other big time teams. Uh, they're back to the media polls where Ohio State is the runaway winner. You know, 41st place votes as far as leading the conference, which was to be expected. Uh, but then there's a huge drop off. And, and I actually read a, a, an article online that kind of frames it a little bit how I was thinking, where there's tears almost, I think at least perceptually, that there's Ohio State who's just miles out in front of everyone. And if, as you mentioned, if they lay an egg, well, that changes things. But if not, is there really a team on the doorstep? Uh, this art, this particular article talks about sort of a second tier, and they put Michigan State in there just because of the work that uh, that, that D'Antonio's done in sort of building a program. But that said, I, I don't think they're looked at as someone who's possibly a part of the national picture. Wisconsin usually sits in that second tier, but with a coaching change and some uncertainty there and the loss of sort of your big time stars like Melvin Gordon, there's a, eh, are, are they still at that same spot? And then they have that coaching change as well. So is there a, a, is there a reality to the idea that there are still some sort of growing teams burgeoning from the bottom or is it Ohio state and everyone else? And right now, I think it's Ohio State and everyone else. It's just because of what you said. There, you know, they have the consistency there with the coaching staff, uh, even the defensive coordinator. You, you, you got to think, uh, you know, where the defense came on last year. Where, where at the beginning of the year last year, you thought Ohio State was going to struggle defensively and just be an offensive juggernaut. They, they were kind of yin and yang, and then obviously with the turnover at Wisconsin, you know, even the turnover at a powerhouse that really hasn't stepped up is my alma mater, uh, you know, Nebraska. Penn State hasn't, you know, had that quick turnaround with, with Franklin. Look, that's another coaching change. And even with Michigan, even though I know Harbaugh comes in and he's done great things at Stanford, obviously done great things at 49ers, but it's still that transition year. So you got to think, you got four, you know, usually dynamite programs that are all in transition. And then with the only one that's a, that has, you know, some stability is, is Michigan State. Now, and you know what would really help Michigan State be up there with Ohio State? Well, if they would have played better against Ohio State for one, uh, right. and then obviously even previous before that, if they wouldn't have stubbed their toe and laid an egg against Oregon, because you got to think when they were playing Oregon, they were they were winning and they were dictating the pace of that game, and then they just got outside of their realm. If they would have played better against Oregon, uh, I think they would have a lot more respect because Ohio State took that game plan that Michigan State played for about three quarters and just played four quarters and and beat up on Oregon pretty bad. So I think. Uh, right now it's Ohio State or Buck, uh, but I think, uh, you know, if you get that one surprise team uh, that gives Ohio State a challenge, and it's going to have to be out of the Big Ten West. Uh, right. You know, Michigan State and Ohio State, they're going to battle. Same with Michigan and, and Michigan State. It, it's got to be, you know, it's going to have to be an extremely uh, perfect effort, either out of Minnesota, you know, obviously Nebraska, and Wisconsin. And let's not forget, even though Ohio State went, got on that hot streak, the team that played them the best, when you look at their whole schedule, besides Virginia Tech, obviously, was Minnesota. They went toe-to-toe with Ohio State and gave them the best game for four quarters. So, uh, you know, Minnesota's quietly being a, a team that you have to reckon with on a, obviously, Big Ten level and obviously national level. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Jerry Kill just does not get a lot of respect. Minnesota always sits as that team that, oh, a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a question mark this week. These guys could be sneaky good. You didn't circle them at the beginning of the year, yet they always seem like they're there. I'm going through some of these sort of just the media media accumulation of things throughout the offseason and then talking about, you know, top head coaches and top programs and things like that across the big. And Jerry Kill's always down around the bottom. And you're a kid that grew up in Eden Prairie understand sort of that Minneapolis market I think it gets overlooked a lot that there's there's a lot of talented players a lot of kids that I knew guys that I knew that went on and played in the NFL that came from sort of the Minneapolis region I always thought in my head if you could convince kids to stay there and and not go you know not go east to Michigan and Michigan State and Ohio State and stuff like that there's talent enough there to win yeah there's plenty of talent that not only went to division one level big time schools but then also made it to the NFL you gotta think myself uh, you know, James Laronitis, uh, just to, you know, just to say the least, and, and guys that are do, you know doing some stuff on big levels. We in Nebraska, we just signed a, a, a big time uh, JD Spellman, you know, out of Eden Prairie. Uh, that's leaving. So the biggest thing for for Minnesota, what they're doing a better job now with since Jerry Kill has gotten there, is keeping majority of in-state talent um, and, and, and right. developing them. And they're what they're doing is they're getting the guys, the big offensive linemen from Northern Minnesota, developing, making them more athletic. And they stick to their formula, and they play the same way. When they pull that bus up, that gopher bus, no matter where it's at, you know what they're gonna, you know how they're gonna play. They're gonna be physical, they're gonna be disciplined, uh, and then they're gonna take advantage of you when you uh, make mistakes. And that's kind of, you know, they kind of remind me a little bit. Uh, I know this is talking about a professional team. Is when New England and when you guys were up there, when you guys were first starting getting on that run, where you guys weren't yeah. pulling guys out, you know, teams out, but you guys were, you know beating them up physically, you know, a team would, you know, turn the ball over on, on special teams or on offense. You capitalize on it, and that's what the Gophers have been doing. They will eventually get more talent, and then they will get more respect. And I think it's it, – it's, look, Minnesota's always kind of been a basketball school. Um, right. But then also, uh, at the same time, the football program has always been second fiddle. But then when you have Jerry Kill's personality and the same coaching staff that he's brought every, everywhere he's been, and they model him. They were kind of, you know, they're lunch pail guys, hard workers, you know, good people. Uh, it's not the pizzazz that you that you expect out of a college coach when you're dealing with per- big personalities of Urban Meyer, you know, Jim Harbaugh, James Franklin. Uh, and so then you think, like, oh, it's just the same old Gophers. They've had a couple good years, but now they have more talent. Now you're going to see, oh, well, they just had a couple, you know, five good years. And you just I think their big breakthrough win is when they went to Northwestern and beat them up pretty bad, and, and Northwestern was pretty good two years ago. And I think they're a team to reckon with from years to come. We could spend a lot of time on a school like Minnesota, who who was an adjutant, I think, throughout the year, and was really surprising people that they were still alive and in it as he went into bowl season. They didn't have the best uh, bowl performance, you know, getting knocked off by a Missouri team that was very resurgent themselves towards the end of the season. But it, it's funny that, you know, we can talk about these teams that kind of sit in the weeds of the big that people often overlook. And yeah, I'm circling back here again to Michigan State. Uh, can you imagine a scenario in another conference, say say had Stanford done this or say had uh, Auburn done this or something along these lines? You mentioned sort of that early season loss that Michigan State had, had against Oregon. And Oregon was everyone's darling throughout the season. And as you mentioned, for at least a half of football, Michigan, looked, Michigan State on the road in Eugene looked every bit the team of, as Oregon. Now that same team goes throughout their, their college season and in the bowl game, uh, Michigan State beats Baylor. And I, I guess the reason that that is so bizarre to me is that they knock off what I think, at least in the Big 12, is the presumptive favorite, either TCU or, 
Baylor's right back in this national championship conversation. The team that beat him just months ago returns their quarterback in, in Connor Cook, who's a Big Ten offensive uh, quarterback of the year kind of uh, kind of candidate. And, you know, yes, they lost Ed Davis to injury a little while ago. I think that could hurt them defensively. Trey Waynes is gone. There's a few bodies gone, but it has a factory feel. Yet, Michigan State doesn't get that respect. They just really aren't held up in the same regard. Shalit Calhoun, one of the best pass rushers in the, in the conference, maybe in the country, could be a, a first-round pick. But you don't hear about Michigan State in, in the national title consideration. Yeah, and that's the funny thing about it. And that's what they – you know, the, the good thing about it is that's what Michigan State's going to be playing off all year. Uh, yeah, and all, exactly. all season. They're, 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 they're going to be ready to go. Um, and, but then the bad thing is, is the national media – hasn't done a good enough job of really researching and peeling back the layers of the Big Ten and peeling back the layers of a team like Michigan State, where, you know, in my opinion, I've watched that Oregon game. I know they ended up losing by, I think, 14 points. They, to me, they gave that game away. They, you know, as a former player, that's a frustrating game to watch because right. you, you, cause when you lose those type of games, you legitimately are on the bus and, and, and saying, we just lost and just gave away a game to an inferior team. And that's what they, I think they did. But then to go through the whole uh, season, you know, kind of got, you know, handled pretty pretty well at home against Ohio State when they were yep. on their run. Absolutely. And then to bounce back against Baylor, who had a legitimate argument to be in the Final Four over Ohio right. State, and then beat them the way they did in the bowl game, and essentially on a road a road bowl game at that. Exactly. Um, exactly. Was, was pretty impressive. So I think Michigan State is more of a, a factory. And, and look, listen, anytime that you have Connor Cook, or a player, Connor Cook's ability, you always have a chance to beat a team like Ohio State uh, and win a national championship because, he, in my opinion, he is that good. He's, he's gotten better. Uh, you know, he's grown by leaps and bounds uh, the last two years, and especially from his first year start to the second year. Uh, so I think they're going to be good. I think that they, they, they do a good job of getting the guys that are going to replace the starters that go on to the next level just right. enough snaps that, that they have enough confidence and then I think that uh, AJ Troop uh, is going, you know, going into his junior year. I think he's going to be a pretty good receiver. He's kind of like just a Michigan State type of receiver, big, physical, just fast enough to beat you over top, but will make tough catches. And I think he'll be the go-to guy this year for Connor Cook. Well, it's interesting that you know we get into we've we've done it thus far and started to talk quarterbacks a little bit. Connor Cook, I think, is sort of that presumptive leader, kind of leading in the clubhouse kind of guy before a game's in play. We don't know how it'll shake out. But because of that factory element, there's a sense that he'll play well. You know, he'll improve. He's improved each year from a time where was he even going to be the guy early on to all of a sudden he's a top-of-the-league kind of dude. Uh, Christian Hackenberg is really that other name. He's the guy that I think pro scouts are – are super high on the difficulty there. And, and you mentioned it was Franklin being a, a newer coach in the conference. They've had obviously the, the recruiting restrictions uh, last year was meant to be that big bump year. They had a little trouble with protection and oddly enough, some of those guys that were involved in the protection were high draft picks in the NFL. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's it, isn't it crazy how that happens? <laughs> yeah. But you, yeah, come, you, co you come back this next season and I think people are looking for the bounce back year. They're expecting more out of that program. Uh, we've had this sort of, quarterback conversation is it Hackenberg is it Connor Cook and you got Ohio State where I'm, I'm pivoting here a little bit to the, to what has been the biggest story in the big all three quarterbacks we didn't know who it was going to be there uh, Urban Meyer is still holding his cards of whether or not it's going to be JT Barrett or or, uh, or Jones so we're kind of in this situation where hmm, is it going to be Cardell is it going to be Barrett we're preparing on week one for these guys and we don't know who we're going to see 
Uh, Braxton Miller's a wide receiver now, or an H-back, apparently. I'm. It's been the biggest story of the offseason. I would submit to you, because I, I guess as much as anything, I hold each in pretty high regard. I don't think it really matters what his choice is, because I don't think he can go wrong with either of those two. I think Ezekiel yeah. Elliott can actually be your offensive player of of the of the league, the most valuable offensive player in the big. That dude is scary, and I think where he goes, Ohio State goes. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, look, you know, they, as a defensive player, as a linebacker, you know, we never feared any running backs. And I think if you look at Elliott, the only running back that I had somewhat of a fear of playing against was Corey Dillon, and I'm pretty sure you played against him. Yeah. And I think Ezekiel Elliott is, is just a – Corey Dillon was pretty fast, and he's two or three steps faster than Corey Dillon. And as far as our quarterback situation, I mean, hey, look, if you ever need a salesman, <laughs> I think you hire Urban Meyer and you listen to his job. <laughs> so he, he let him write a book because – for him that, to, to get Braxton Miller to come back, uh, buy into playing a whole different position, give up you – know, let's face it, he was a two-time Big Ten player of the year yeah, uh, and, and, and switch positions for the betterment of the team. That's a good sales effort. But then also it's, it's kudos to Braxton Miller. But as far as Jones versus Barrett, um, you know, he, he's in a life of luxury. And, and both guys are always going to push each other. And really, if you play both of them and they both understand their roles, it's almost going to make their offense on a level to where it could be unstoppable Unstoppable because uh, both quarterbacks know uh, that they're going to go to the next level. So if, if right. JT Barrett is the starter, Cordell Jones knows he's going to go to the next level because he could have won last year. And he's gotten probably better just in the offseason, coaching, et cetera. And JT Barrett knows he's uh, young enough that he's still going to get meaningful reps. So I think that uh, what, what Urban Meyer is going to have to do is find the role and, and, and define the roles. And then you think about a team like uh, Penn State where if you put into a, a computer right now, you know, these little scouts, that they, you know, that they're drooling over all the guys that don't really do anything in college, but they'll still draft them high, put them in the right. computer, a quarterback in the, in the computer, Christian Hackenberg is going to pop out 99.9% .9 of the time. Uh, it, but the, to his defense, there's been transition. He played really well as a freshman with Bill O'Brien. Obviously, took yeah. a step back uh, with the new new system. Offensive line woes were really, really bad. Somehow, those guys that were awful during the season must have tested out and shorts and, <laughs> and t-shirts and got drafted really high. Uh, but I think they've they've done some things. When you read a couple of articles, to uh, alleviate some of the things, the deficiencies that they that they have on the offensive line. I think they're going to try to run the ball more. I think Christian Hackenberg is obviously going to be a little bit more. Uh, mature and better in James Franklin's system, knows what the coaches want. Franklin's going to know what he wants out of him. So I envision that he's going to have a better year. Um, but I still think that Elliott is the, 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 you know, the offensive player of the year. He is the man in the Big Ten. Uh, Christian Hackenberg will, you know, if he has a so-so year, I imagine he still gets drafted pretty high. I mean, you know, and I know there's, you know, right. a draft day, you'll see guys that, you know, get drafted and, and didn't play well. So, um, but, you know, I think that Elliott is a special running back, and he's, and he's on the level of Gurley uh, like he was this year in Georgia because I think he, he's a guy that can run physical inside. Uh, he can take it to the distance, but then also he's really good in the pass game and in pass protection. So I think he's a, you know, a four-star running back, you know, like by the Jay Foreman rankings, if you ask me. <laughs> I like that ranking. So, well, I want to pivot. I'm going to pivot here slightly back into sort of the coaching conversation because this, I think, hits home for you. Obviously, the market where you live and you follow and where you played. Uh, you know, obviously, this is an unusual situation in the big to have 
not necessarily three coaching changes amongst 14 teams. That's not completely unprecedented. But the idea that it's three in such major sort of blue blood programs, when Michigan makes a change and Wisconsin makes a change and Nebraska makes a change all in one offseason, that's a, that's a that's a big sea change in a league. That's something you're not going to see probably another 20, 50 years, whatever it would be. So Jim Harbaugh comes in. You already mentioned that. I think he's up against it a bit because his quarterback situation is is up in the air. I think he's got an exceptional defense, but you know, bringing over the transfer from Iowa as as a potential option and really just trying to scrape things together and recruit hard a second season might be his task. Paul Chris. Christ comes back back to Wisconsin, a place where he grew up, a place where he played, and comes back over from Pitt. I think Wisconsin still has a bit of that factory feel as well. Well, most people, I think, are considering they'll hit the ground running. Still going to be a run-first offense with or without James White, who's gone two years ago, and then Melvin Gordon the next year and on and on. Uh, this unique situation, though, I think the biggest change, quite frankly, that we might see on the field is with Mike Riley in your place at Nebraska, coming over from Oregon State. Uh, and for this reason, I, I'm curious, and I'd love to know how you kind of see it on the ground there and have seen some practices and been around the program more. Mike Riley's bringing in a pro-style offense. He, he did great with that at Oregon State, probably felt he had a ceiling there as far as what you, you could recruit up there. Nebraska has had Tommy Armstrong, has been a great and or kind of running quarterback, a guy that can make plays with his feet. Obviously, Amir Abdullah is no longer there, one of the most explosive guys in the big in the last several years. And we saw a couple nights ago what he did in Detroit. The guy's sick. Uh, but then you also you also lose Kenny Bell, which is, you know, one of the top all time receivers in Nebraska history. So under those sort of strictures to come in and implement a, a, a pass first sort of pro style offense, West Coast kind of feel. How is that going to work? I guess, in your view, how has it been working over the course of the summer for Tommy Armstrong making that transition? Uh, well, you know, to be honest, with you, at at first when you if, you know went to a couple of spring practices, it, it you know it was pretty rough just because you know Tommy Armstrong never got any one on one coaching from the you know offensive coordinator or the quarterback coach from before, and then you're bringing in a guy that's wanting to you to have the fundamentals of playing quarterback. So it was a transition not only for Tommy Armstrong but across the board. A lot of guys were they were getting coached hard with Coach Fair, uh, but then you saw you know when I went to a practice a couple of days ago. Uh, you know, he looked like a totally different player, more command of the offense, uh, even still making some mistakes, but he's gotten better by, you know, one or two, two big strides over the summer. Um, so I think, that, you know, what, what I think the great thing about Mike Riley is he's not going to shove his offense when he, he, you know, when he had post-out quarterbacks like Matt Moore up at Oregon State down these players' throats. He's going to give them enough post-style to keep defenses off balance but then also mixing the things that the, the guys that are really good at. So I think that if, if I had a crystal ball, I'd envision Tommy Armstrong, you know, out on the edges, throwing out on the run, uh, not having to read defenses like, uh, you know, a Dan Marino type of quarterback, uh, keeping right. really simple form and trying to develop that offensive line and develop an identity, uh, a foundation uh, in this program that we haven't had on the offensive side of the ball. And that's being a dominant offensive line up front. Um, I, I know Mike Riley, you know, I spoke to him several times. He's excited about the opportunity, excited about the, the you know, the grocery list he's able to shop with, with as far as the players that he's able to coach on a consistent basis, the depth of players that he's able to have, you know, day in and day out. Um, so he's up to the challenge, and it's going to be, uh, you know, I think if there's ever a guy that's going to make the transition smoother, obviously he's a totally different act than, you know, the previous act, would be Mike Riley just because of his ability to adjust because he's, He's, he's had different offenses up in Oregon State. He's had Steven Jackson, power running back. Then he's had Rodgers, right. kind of a, 
scat back running back. Then he's had a, you know, aired out offenses where that has kind of, you know, made him, you know, famous. So he's able to adjust. So I think he's a, you know, great addition. Then when you look at uh, Chris up at Wisconsin, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that transition will be just because you lose the, you know, the bell cow and Melvin Gordon. Uh, I think the transition as far as their offense will be pretty easy because, you know, look, Barry Alvarez is like, look, I'm hiring you. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have these huge offensive linemen. We're going to lean on people and we're going to run the ball. I think that's going to help them as they have Clement and he's ready to explode on the scene kind of like right. how uh, Gordon was after, you know, uh, ball left. So I think that transition will be a little bit easier. It'll be different. It'll be different in the sense of overall philosophy, how it, it's changed. Uh, from last year to this year, uh, it, as far as Paul Chris is, his, he's going to try to lay his blueprint across that whole program with Barry Alvarez is okay, uh, and he's looking to be there long term versus a one and done. And then obviously with Michigan and Jim Harbaugh, uh, it's, it's going to be tougher than people think for him. I think that I know he'll be able to recruit, uh, but I think that uh, his brashness with this type of player in this day and time might not work out as well as fast as people think at Michigan, because you have to think when you're going to Stanford, those kids are able, they're able to take themselves mentally already as far as academically to another right. level. And they have, and they're able to push themselves farther and able to take harder coaching, harder teaching and classes uh, just to get into Stanford. So then therefore the physical part is easy for them uh, because they're able to already go there mentally. Now you're trying to uh, implement that at Michigan. Uh, with a whole bunch of pressure, and then obviously that pressure to win uh, with that team down the road, as they like to say, Ohio State winning national championships within three years, uh, that pressure is on uh, Coach Harbaugh. And one of the things, I, you know, that I always – that I, I, I felt when I watched his press conference, which I, 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 don't know, I don't know him personally, but I would just assume that if I got the job at the University of Nebraska or even University of Minnesota, one of my hometowns, Mm-hmm. I would the, the excitement would have been a little bit different. I think that he still has that, you know, because look, when you get fired, you, you know, essentially ran out of a of an NFL team that you pretty much takes from taken from the depths of hell to, you know, right. one of the superior programs in the NFL. Then you know, imagine you know, a couple of weeks you're out of there and you really had to coach a whole season as a lame duck coach. Uh, it's probably a hard pill to swallow. So I think for him, he's going to have to have a little bit of that transition as well. And I'm pretty sure. He's, uh, you know, became okay with it. But this is one of the things I kind of picked up on when I was watching his uh, introductory uh, conference or press conference because I was kind of excited to see what what he was going to say. Well, it's always interesting when you have a guy who was really good at one thing as a player and he's had, not that they're not good, but good in different ways, different styles. I mean, Harbaugh was a quarterback's quarterback. He, you know, he was a tough guy, take hits, had a little bit of, you know, a little extra something to him. It wasn't move the pocket. We're not talking about like Randall Cunningham here, but he could he could sort of grit out plays and manufacture plays and those kind of things, sort of like a, a Favre light kind of guy. And then he gets in San Francisco and he rolls with Colin Kaepernick, who's just an incredible athlete, a different kind of player, has a cannon for an arm, but the system he's running there isn't anything that Harbaugh ever had as a player. Uh, and now he's in a situation in Michigan where you drop in, you're ready to ready to re-energize the program and change things. And one, quite frankly, one of the biggest question marks in town is the quarterback situation again. So I can imagine that's a little bit frustrating. It's like you or I taking a job and, you know, linebackers, the worst position on the team or something like that, you know, or at least the biggest question mark. It's something where the relatability isn't there and it's, it's a little difficult to kind of do what you want to do kind of deal. 
Uh, yeah, real quick, yeah. I, I'm sorry. I just wanted to get your your insight on Nebraska. One last thing before we move off that team. Uh, you know, you you brought up a really cool point uh, about Riley's uh, flexibility, and I think that's sometimes something people overlook. He's he's tagged as the West Coast offense kind of guy, especially with Sean Mannion being the guy that they've had most recently. But you, you referenced Stephen Jackson. They've had offenses that have run different different ways. I looked at Tommy Armstrong, and I think a lot of the conversation when we first saw the hire last spring was like, oh, my goodness, how's he going to be able to do that? And I think West Coast offense, and I think, you know, the guy's in the pocket, he's square, he's reading the whole field, it's quick passing, all tempo stuff. And I wondered if, you know, like you sort of mentioned, a little move of the pocket, boots, dashes, things like that, where their half-field reads might fit him more. And where, so it's sort of a two-part question. A, do you see them going that route? And B, where's the ball going now? Obviously, there's no more Kenny Bell and Abdul is gone. Yeah, I see them trying to do it, especially in the beginning of the season, to have some success and get the confidence going, not only with Tommy Armstrong, but with the whole team and especially the offense. I think he, you, 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 I wouldn't. I hate to say dummy it down because Tommy Armstrong is a smart kid. So I think that right. he's going to make it as simple as possible, and, and that's going to be out on the run, using his athletic ability against defensive ends, linebackers that can't match up. But then also give being a dual threat quarterback as far as being able to run and pass, and which is going to be the best thing for him. If he had ever had a blueprint, I'll say the the talent between these two guys I'm going to compare is, is is you know light years apart. If you think about how Seattle used Russell Wilson. You know, just kind of get him right. and make it very easy for him. Uh, play small ball in a sense, and, and you know about that uh, being up in New England. Uh, but, uh, yeah. you know, as far as the, where the ball is going to go, that is the $4 million question. I think uh, there's, a, there's a kid uh, named Brandon Riley that, that's, that's really, you know, even last year was just because he played behind Kenny Bell, just didn't get a lot of notoriety. But I think he's really stepped up. Uh, Coach Williams, the receiver coach, has coached every single receiver hard. Um, I think uh, there, we have a young uh, freshman named Stanley Morgan, uh, who I envision by the end of the year starting. Uh, I think that he's going to get a lot of balls, but then also we're going to have the reemergence of the tight end at Nebraska, which we had a tradition for a while of tight ends. I think Season Carter is going to be uh, featured, and also we have a pretty impressive freshman from California. Uh, I think his, last, his name is Matt Schneider. I think that it's going to do pretty well. So I think that uh, we're, we're going to have a variety of guys. I don't think you're going to have one bell cow at any position that's going to have, you know, 85 catches. I think you're going to see guys with 40 catches, 30 catches. I think you're going to see guys, everybody getting their chance. And then the next year, year two, uh, hopefully somebody really steps up and being that almost or hopefully that first team all Big Ten uh, wide receiver tight end type. Well, I'm going to get in trouble if, if I, I do this show and we conclude without at least touching on Iowa, you know, being sort of died in the wool Hawkeye yeah. fan as a kid. I have to touch on them, but I, to be honest, I think it's fair that you haven't and fair that I haven't to this point. I, there is sort of in that Hawkeye Nation sort of a feeling of frustration of seven and five and eight and four seasons where expectations just aren't met. It's a team that's a little bit boring, a little bit bland. Uh, you know, they, they look like they may have this, this, their quarterback in CJ Beathard now, but you know, again, he seems like he's been there for quite a while and they still just haven't turned the corner. Uh, any thoughts there on Iowa, obviously as a team in the West that, that kind of sometimes plays a role as an adjutant, there's sort of a bit of a burgeoning, I guess, uh, rivalry amongst Iowa and Nebraska. But if you're in Nebraska, quite frankly, you, you start to look past them. I think you're more concerned with some of the other bigger names. Does Iowa have a chance, in your view, to still be a part of at least the bowl conversation, if not the division race? 
Well, the, the, here's the thing that Iowa fans, if I'm an Iowa fan, I should be excited. That every year that you think that they're going to be terrible, they end exactly. up winning like nine or ten games. So, <laughs> I know, uh, exactly. So, so it, can they be a rival to Nebraska, somebody that we can look past? No, we're not there yet as a, as a, as a program. But I also feel we should never lose to Iowa. But what Iowa has done and what to look for, their offense will struggle this year because they lose a you know a big offense line, Brandon uh, Sharif, uh, the sheriff that we used to call him. Uh, it, so there won't be a physical up front. But their defensive line will be pretty good. They have a couple of Nebraska kids uh, that are draftable guys. I think throughout will probably get drafted pretty high. Uh, they're pretty defensive linebacker position and pretty solid on the back end. Uh, but the, but the, the, for the Iowa fans out there, I will tell you this, uh, unless something really special happens in that offensive coordinator's uh, playbook and that personnel that hasn't been out there before, uh, you're looking at, you know, it's going to be a struggle to get the 7-8 wins. I think they should, you know, get a bowl game. Uh, but then also there's going to be some rumblings there, I think, next next offseason uh, as far as, you know, the whole situation as far as that uh, – uh, change go to the, at the head coaching position because I just their talent isn't there. They don't have that one player that can kind of get them over the hump, that upset victory. Uh, pretty sure they're over there in Ames, Iowa. They're pretty happy because I think they're going to try to, uh, you know, put it on them pretty good. But I think Iowa's going to be about the same team as they, they were last year. I kind of follow them pretty close just because, uh, you know, that was kind of sealed the fate of the Bo Pelini era. So I kind of wanted to, you know, see what's coming <laughs> up next day. You know, they, they, you know they, they beat us up pretty good two years ago, and then we were lucky enough to beat them last year. And, you know, then obviously then they decided to make a change. So I wanted to see, you know, really dig into Iowa and see what it was that uh, that allowed them to play us pretty close and, and beat us up pretty physically. So I think that, uh, you know, they'll be about the same. They'll be a decent team. And, and you know, they're non-conference. They're going to have to play well, uh, get ahead, get a game or two ahead so they have that kind of, uh, you know, money in their back pocket because I think they're going to struggle against teams that they normally don't struggle against uh, to get victories, and that's going to hurt them late in the season. It's interesting that you you sort of mentioned the idea of if if some you know some trick gets pulled out of uh, the offensive coordinator's bag and he comes up with something unique and different, and I, I think in in Iowa City and and a lot of people across sort of the state of Iowa are waiting for that. <laughs> and that's probably when part of the frustration I, as a linebacker, I, I know, you know, this, but there's, I'll sit and watch Hawkeye games and I'm, I'm stunned by how predictable it can be sometimes. Now they, they have hogs, they block well, they're coached well, quarterback plays generally deep, you know, solid. They, they block well at the tight end position. All the backs run really hard. Everyone plays hard, plays good. But from a key standpoint, if I'm standing there in linebacker, the motions are pretty simplistic. You kind of, you know, you kind of got to, your run pass uh, keys are relatively easy. The run reads are pretty easy. It's just, it's vanilla, which is, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Gary Patterson in TCU, who was an older style Cole for years and years and years. And all of a sudden he says, screw it. And he opens it up and he's in a similar situation. If you're at TCU, you're not going to get the exact same athlete that they're going to get at UT or, or A&M or Oklahoma or your neighbors, I think Iowa's always going to be in that situation. Nebraska's nearby, but, you know, if you have that top kid who's coming out of Chicago, he's probably going to Ohio State, you know, or he's going to Michigan or something yeah. like that. Uh, but to have a vanilla offense with a little bit lesser athlete, I, we've always, you know, it's 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 a point of contention, we'll put it that way, to kind of yeah. handi- handicap yourself a little bit if scheme could open it up and make life a little easier. Um, one last thought before we sort of conclude this show. Uh, I, we've done all the other com- – we've done uh, the Pac-12 and uh, the Big 12, and we've kind of hit on the same point with some of the other guys that played in those conferences. 
the playoff happened a year ago. We still know uh, after a first run through it that there's still five power conferences and only four slots. In your view, uh, with, assuming, of course, that Ohio State is in that conversation or maybe it's Michigan State, uh, even if we, either of those teams are one-loss teams, is, is the Big Ten in a class now where they're getting a guy in one way or the other, presuming it's not a two-loss kind of deal? I, I think they are. And the reason why I think, and this is just going from evaluating the teams and, and you know, their schedules, how it's going to be, uh, you know, throughout the whole year, you know, like our top six teams. And then obviously I envision in the SEC everybody, I think that that gap with Alabama is closed in very tightly uh, where they're kind of all even Steven. So you never know on a week to week basis. So I think that helps a, a conference and teams like Ohio state, and Michigan state, uh, still be relevant if they, you know, stuff their toe early in the season. Now, if it's later in the season, uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it hurts us it hurts us twice as much. But I think if it's the early stuff, like last year, I think they still can get in um, just because I think Big Ten has, has got that respect now uh, that they're, they're a powerful conference and can upset uh, SEC teams because we had finally had a good bowl season. Right. I know exactly. It was sort of that whew moment for, for across sort of the heartland. Hey, I, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap the show here, but I have to make the sort of the acknowledgement we're doing, you know, a, a 30 to 40 minute show here on the big 10 conference. And we don't even touch on Indiana who's sort of always on the cusp, but never quite there. We did some time on Minnesota Rutgers, interesting situation there. Maybe you and I have this conversation a year from now and because they can recruit so heavily in that New York, New Jersey area and bring in some athletes to the conference that haven't been there in the past, who knows where that's going to potentially go. Illinois, just they're where they're at in the conference for a while. And it, it, it seems bleak, but who knows? Uh, and, you know, the other one that always kind of gets me that I, that I can't get past and it, it, it's maybe some linebacker bias, loving Pat Fitzgerald, that Northwestern crew always seems like that team that you overlook when you're looking at a, a preseason ranking. But if they're on your schedule that week, your mindset changes, you know, especially if it's a night game on ESPN there in Evansville, it's just a different environment and it's a team that might get you. Is there anyone in sort of that crew of the somewhat forgotten teams that you may be expecting a little more out of than, than maybe other teams, uh, other people across the country are? Yeah, I, I think I, I wouldn't say Northwestern, but a team that kind of is like the, little brother of Northwestern that played pretty good against Big Ten teams is Maryland. I think Maryland, uh, you know, the Pennsylvania area, Maryland, Virginia, they get some good players. I think they, they, they played better than they thought they would against, you know, Big Ten teams and competed well. Um, and I think that they're going to take a big step. I think they are a dangerous team if you're late in the season, have some injury problems or aren't playing as well or kind of overlook them, and then you play the Turpins. Uh, I, I think they could beat you and ruin some seasons. So I think they're a team that's on the rise. I think they're going to be a quiet, uh, big addition to the to the Big Ten, uh, just because I think overall their whole athletic department is pretty good. Yeah, I was right with you, and I was sort of on that train on BTN last year, sort of saying, "Hey, don't forget about them." I mean, they're they're recruiting in sort of what could be a big hotbed. I mean, just do not look overlook Maryland, Maryland, and then they just dropped the bomb to Stanford, which was a weaker Stanford unit in the, uh, in the, in the Foster Farms Bowl. So I was like, ah, that really lets some air out. So hopefully, hopefully they recover from that because, you know, really stretching the reach of the big all the way to the East coast, I think is, is could really change the things. And we're talking about this maybe, maybe five years from now. Well, that's going to be all for the show today. Thanks so much, Jay. Awesome stuff, buddy. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the football by football podcast. As always, the FBF podcast can be found for streaming and download on football by com or blogtalkradio.com. You can download the FBF podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn Radio app. 
For daily insightful stuff from these guys and others, make sure to check out the footballbyfootball.com Facebook page and give us a follow on Twitter at FB by FB. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.